Welcome to Midwretched, the home of the most heartless of the heartland. Join us, Tommy and Mick, as we share the best true crime tales the Midwest has to offer. Friends, welcome back to Midwretched. Welcome back, Michigan, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Illinois, and no one else in the Midwest. <laughs> <laughs> like, where is she going with this? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I saw this really, I thought, kind of inspiring picture today that was uh, part of an article that was like, look, there are not really red states and blue states. Every state is purple. It's just a varying shade. And I was like, that's interesting. And that had a map of all the different, like, when you kind of add in the numbers, the different shades of purple for each state. And, of course, Indiana is, you know, magenta, a very red purple. But, (laughs) yeah, I just thought it was interesting. I don't know. Like, it's going to be hard to think about unity, but we have to think about it, you know. Yeah, I know. But you can still be mad, though. Oh, I am. I'm going to be mad at people. Yeah. That's okay. It's it's over now. We can all breathe. We can. And we're happy. Right? We are happy. Yes. I just let some incense, so I'm not breathing super easily, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm like, oh, thought it would be nice. Actually, it sucks. Okay. <laughs> but yes, I think we can breathe, and yeah, we can breathe and we can think about a future. That doesn't mean that we're going to be like clenching our jaws for the next four years. I have no teeth left. They're just nubs. I know. I'm just like walking TMJ. And then suddenly it was like, oh, oh my gosh. Oh my God. I went to yoga on Saturday. I get in and I just like lay down and supported fish and so that my shoulders can finally just like drape below oh, me. <laughs> gorgeous. Oh, gorgeous. I was like, I don't even want to leave this position. I'm just going to stay here. Is that weird? No, it's not weird. It actually sounds really delicious right now. Like I want to get into a supported fish. Yeah, and watching the world burn just does not help that shruggy shoulder feeling at all. Yeah, no. Yeah, highly recommend it. Good position to be in right now. Heyo. Heyo. <laughs> so we also have some updates to share, right? Yeah, this is episode 11. It is. And it, no, we have, we've gone through a lot together, a lot of learning, mm-hmm. a lot yeah. of growing. Yes. Um, But we wanted to kind of revisit some things, give you guys an update about everything that's been going on. Yeah, for sure. My first update is some Sydney Loof case. Mm-hmm. On the day that we, that we launched that episode. Mm-hmm. Bailey Boswell was found guilty of first-degree murder. I believe she is still awaiting sentencing Mm -hmm. and will probably appeal it. But, yeah, we had very fortuitous timing on the release of that episode. We really did. We really did. And it was cool to see, like, since we're both such stats geeks, cool to see, like, the power of Google on that one. Like, that's by far our most listened to episode. And I think that timing is a huge part of it. So. Oh, yeah. It was cool. And we love the support that we got from listeners and checking it out and everything. That was really, really cool. It was so cool. And I think we even got some feedback that people liked kind of hearing in real time cases. So. Yeah, we did get that feedback. And that is super fun because I think we both can kind of get a little bit like in the pasty past. Oh, yeah. We love but an old timey. We do. And I love an 80s, oh. 90s. Like, it's kind of a cool like reality check for us too to try to make sure we're keeping an eye on what's actually happening right now. So, again, feedback that we like and we take and we will incorporate now for you guys. Totally. We really appreciate that. Um, but more importantly, we're glad that Sydney Luth got justice and that both her killers are now going to be put away. Absolutely. Totally. So then my update is also really good news. Um, a couple, of, I would say, what, like four weeks ago mm-hmm. at this point, we sent out an ask for people to keep an eye out for Huda Roshdi, who was missing from the South Bend area, 15-year-old girl. She was found after being missing for a couple of weeks and is safely back home with family. 
So Yay, that's so glad that was really you. good news. Yeah, yeah, really, really, really good news. I know you were super relieved to hear that. I was. I was really worried, really worried. So yeah, it was great to hear that. And so yeah, those were our really important updates we wanted to share. And uh, again, just thanks to everyone for listening and paying attention and keeping eyes and ears out and you know all that good stuff yeah yeah oh i also wanted to put a big ope out there oh oh on our weepy voice killer episode we were talking about whether or not priests had to report crimes Mm. and i said that i believe that they did but they only are held to mandated reporting if it's a child case. Mm-hmm. So if it's an adult who confesses to them, they are not required to speak with the police. It's super interesting. They can be subpoenaed, but as a psychologist, I can tell you the first thing you do when you get a subpoena is ignore it and call your lawyer. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I'm sure that's what they do, too. Certainly. And they will yeah. do just about anything to get them to not have to testify. So Yeah. That makes total sense. So yeah, that was my big ope. Just wanted to throw a correction out there. Well, good job. Thanks. Yeah, we in the Midwest love humility. Yeah. Are we going to get on to your case? Yes, ma'am. So, yeah. Um, this case is going to bring us to an aspect of the Midwest that we have yet to really discuss at this point. And that is uh, kind of the the culture and community of uh, Native American indigenous first nations people living in the u.s so there's a lot of information to find right and it feels like something that is obviously like a huge part of our country and its history and its culture but i think that there's a dearth of knowledge about the fact that indigenous peoples are like very much alive and well in this country like um that there are lots and lots and lots of first nations people in the u.s and that in many ways, these communities are uh, very different. I mean, in lots of ways, culturally, uh, as far as criminal justice goes, very, very different. Yeah, their laws and kind of enforcement is incredibly different than the state side of things. Yeah. So, and, you know, all that sounded kind of fumbly, and I'm sure we'll do some editing, but... (laughs) I'll make it sound so smooth. Yeah, right. But there's an important reason it's fumbly, right? Mm -hmm. And the reason it's fumbly is because despite the fact that we are all, every single one of us, living on land that was stolen and, you know, living in cities that are a result of genocide, we don't know much of anything Mm -hmm. as, I think, a society, as a culture, about indigenous americans so maybe for me i feel like what is taught is very much kind of tokenism totally yeah mm-hmm. and it's very much like was not is oh yeah right? like oh, it's yeah. history it's not contemporary mm-hmm. so so that is something that i wanted to bring some light to today unfortunately there are a lot a lot a lot of cases of murder on reservations mm-hmm. um, and sexual violence and so the story I'm going to tell today is one of many, and we'll kind of go through actually a, kind of a lot of like statistics and information today to just kind of illustrate like that fact. Like we're telling a very specific story, but we're also telling a story that is not an uncommon one. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, today's story takes us back to the Dakotas. Yay, so, Dakotas. Yeah, we haven't been away from the Dakotas for too long, but uh, we're back now. So... Uh, We are headed to the Standing Rock Indian Reservation, which is the sixth largest reservation in the U.S., and which probably most of us know because of the Dakota Access Pipeline Mm -hmm. um, and protesting around that. So um, that activity was centralized around Standing Rock, and so is this case. So Standing Rock is, the, like I said, the sixth largest reservation in the U.S., and it spans um, a huge chunk of land in both North and South Dakota. So it's Southern North Dakota into Northern South Dakota, which like I I had to write that down like three times in like very large font to get right. Um, So Standing Rock is a pretty diverse community uh, inhabited by several different tribal affiliations. So Standing Rock is inhabited by uh, the Hunkpapa, Oglala, and Sihasapa bands of Lakota Oyate, and the Ihang Tuwana and Pabasca bands of Dakota Oyate. 
as well as the Hunkpatina, Dakota. That's kind of a lot of different communities, actually, kind of yeah. um, interwoven in this very, very large chunk of land. It's huge, too. Like, when you say, like, at the border, that's not tight at the border. It's pretty small. Oh, no, it sprawls. It's 2.3 million acres. Oh, my God. Yeah, so it is huge. It is really very large. So uh, it's a huge span of area. It, uh, interestingly, all of the towns kind of within it are very small. So the um, tribal headquarters is and the Bureau of Indian Affairs offices, those are all located in Fort Yates, North Dakota, which is a city of only 211 permanent residents. Um, so that's obviously very small. Um, beautiful place. It sits along the banks of the Missouri River. Um, and then our case actually takes us or centers around, I should say, the largest city in um, within the reservation, which is McLaughlin, South Dakota. And when I say largest city on the reservation, I mean it has 1,500 people. Oh, my God. Yeah. So it's so very, very small. Very small. Almost unimaginable. Yeah. Uh, so it is the biggest in population, but um, a lot of the social safety net facilities are all in Fort Yates, even though Fort Yates is so small. How far away is Fort Yates, then? It is about a half an hour. Okay. Okay. From McLaughlin. but. It could take you, you know, a couple hours to drive the whole reservation end to end. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it's very large. So when we ask the question, like, how do reservations work? The answer is, eee, question mark. Because the way that they work is kind of often very, very differentiated reservation to reservation. So, So how they work is that the land is managed by federally recognized native tribes with internal jurisdiction via the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which bubbles up to the U.S. federal government. Okay. So wait, let me summarize that. (laughs) Yes. Unpack that. So it is under the authority of the tribe, Mm -hmm. but basically supervised by the U.S. government. Right. It's like Mm self-governed under a government. Okay. Yeah. What happens when those boundaries get pushed? Well, what happens when those boundaries get pushed is often a lot of confusion and injustice. Okay. Honestly. So, yeah. so I'm going to put this out there. I know nothing about reservations, how reservations work. So these questions are very genuine and I'm so sorry if I sound ignorant or dumb or anything. I, they're, they're coming from a genuine place and I'm sorry if they, they don't, if they're bad. No, I think they're perfect. And I okay. think it's it's hard to figure it out because there's such a huge degree of just diversity. And also, I think a lot of it is so kind of unknown. Like, And there's a big difference between like, and we'll kind of talk about appropriation a little bit as well when we talk about like populations and things like that. But, you know, there are people that identify as Native American that have Native American lineage. And then there are people that live on reservations who are Indigenous Americans. Okay. So... Uh, the distinction between those two populations numbers-wise is that 2.9 million people living in the U.S. identify as Indigenous, American, or Alaskan Native. One million of them live on reservations. Okay. So, you know, anyone can identify as Indigenous that has Indigenous lineage, right? But that does not necessarily mean living on or having experience with the reservation, which is a very different experience. Yes. You know, from what I've learned. So... Um, so what is really difficult, I think, to the spirit of your question is that who oversees what Mm -hmm. and who oversees who is very confusing and often very blurred. Okay. Part of the problem when it comes to sexual violence, and I'll talk more about that later, but thinking about it now is that tribal authorities cannot prosecute or arrest non-tribal members on tribal land. Are you serious? Right. So if you are a white rapist who rapes an indigenous woman on reservation land, there is not authority for the tribal police to arrest that person. There is authority for federal arrests to be made. Is that specific to sexual violence or just in general? In general. So you're basically saying, so basically this law is saying 
that they... <laughs> you can't please white people? Basically. I mean, um, that, that's, that's the consequence of that yeah, rule, right? It is. Yeah, it totally is. So what happens often is that sexual violence, especially against indigenous women at the hands of white men, does not get reported because you have this understanding that not much is going to happen, right? Murder yeah. cases get pursued. Yeah. Often. Expediently, expertly, that's a question mark. But in large part, there's not a ton of response for non-homicidal crimes, which isn't to say there's not effort. Tribal police are out there. I'm mm -hmm. sure they're doing the best that they can, but we will definitely talk about staffing and what that looks like, especially in regards to this case. Well, and I'm... I don't know. I'm, I'm having such a hard time processing, I guess, that they can't seek justice against anyone outside of their community. Yeah, I mean, they can, but they're... It's hard, right? Yeah. Because your local authorities are not the ones that have, you know, jurisdiction over those people. Now, and they, nor do they have, I guess, a vested interest is the part that bothers me. Right. Yes, exactly. Okay. And you're going to have, like, you know, the county sheriff's office or this and that office. But I think kind of the unspoken thing that happens, too, is just this, like, jurisdictional passing the buck. We talked about that. Mm -hmm kind of previously as well and that it can definitely definitely happen in these situations too where it's like okay certainly the such and such sheriff office could respond to this mm -hmm. but it's on tribal land and, and everything so will they or won't they right and then whose fault is it and it feels like they have a choice yeah which is you know kind of mind-boggling and i guess like you know to the spirit of your question too like i am by no means an expert i mean i've been kind of doing this research and digging into this and i've had a casual interest you know, mm -hmm. for a long time, but I'm certainly not an expert and have a lot to learn as well. So listeners, forgive me if I err, but, um, correct us. Yes, please correct us if needed. Um, but I've certainly done my best. So, um, I think what, what is seen as the good thing is that tribes have tribal sovereignty. Mm -hmm. So laws on different reservations and tribal lands might differ from reservation to reservation and to the surrounding area because of that tribal sovereignty. So there is this sense of, you know, you kind of figure out how to govern your own people, your mm -hmm. own way, which could be seen as dismissive, or it could be seen as permissive, depending on your perspective, right? Yeah. So mm -hmm. a lot of reservations just do their best to replicate federal and state law so that those issues are not as prevalent, yeah. um, and others may not. It's, it's just very much a mixed bag. This sounds like it can be such a mess, and I'm sure we're going to go into exactly how it becomes a big mess. Yeah, yeah, it it definitely can. And my case kind of is a, a tragic example, but there are, like I said before, like numerous other examples of um, of issues with this. So, so again, like just to kind of put some numbers to it, about one million people live on reservations in the U.S. And the total amount of land dedicated to reservations amounts to about the same land area as the state of Idaho. So if you That's put them small. all together, it is small. Yeah. I thought it was going to be way more. No, nope, it's Idaho. Oh. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. Okay. It's very small. Very small. And then to further that anguish I feel bubbling up in all of us right now <laughs> as we think about that. When these lands were dedicated, there aren't a lot of reservations that have been dedicated recently, right? Mm -hmm. So when those lands were dedicated, they were often done so under the guise of quote-unquote peace treaties, which were done under, in large part, extreme duress. And I'm on behalf of my eyes so hard, as you say, like peace treaties. Yes, exactly. I know. I was doing like the biggest air quotes ever. <laughs> ever. So... You know, I think we have in general kind of an understanding of some of the um, challenges that reservations kind of undergo. They're unique and they're complicated. And uh, I'm going to go through some stats that I think are just kind of important to laying some foundation here. So hang with us, people. We're getting to the crime part. But the foundation, I think, is just really important. Guys, this is what we do. You've been here for... <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> And I think like, and I'm going to have a note at the end about like, what do we do now? But I yeah. think part of what do we do now is educate yourself. Yeah. Because we're all living here. Mm -hmm. 
and every scrap of this land was stolen and people were murdered the more you talk more i'm like i know nothing about this i'll send you um there's this great website that tells you like exactly what people's lived like down to like the block wow where you live and it's really interesting like what languages and stuff like that so i'll send that to you um or we'll put it in the show notes show notes yes so I am going to give you just some stats from the National Congress of American Indians. And a lot of these stats are going to be kind of like um, the stats for uh, indigenous people in the U.S. versus kind of everyone else. So on an economic note, the median household income in 2017 for American Indians and Alaska Natives was $40,315. So nationally as a whole, it is $57,652. So that is almost an 18 grand difference in median household income. Yeah. So that tells us a lot about poverty. Mm -hmm. And so now the percentage of American Indian and Alaska Natives living in poverty at the time of that research was 26.8%, which again compares to 14.6 for the nation as a whole. So... You know, poverty is a, a, a serious reality in a lot of these communities and for a lot of these people. Uh, I want to kind of next talk about some of the health disparities because these are, um, I think, also really poignant. Yeah. So compared to other people in the U.S., American Indians and Alaska Natives have a lower life expectancy by five and a half years. That's really significant. Wow. It's very significant. Yeah. They also report much higher rates of death from illnesses like diabetes liver disease, cirrhosis, mm-hmm. and suicide. Yeah. I know that so, really high suicide rate. Yeah. Very high suicide rate and uh, higher than, much higher than average rates of liver disease and cirrhosis, which will kind of correlate to higher rates of alcoholism mm-hmm. as and well. higher rates of mental health struggles. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and uh, much less access to resources. Yeah. Right. So, um, this part, I think just really like kind of hit home for me. So for American Indians and Alaska natives, the rate of dying of heart disease is 1.3 times higher than all other races. Diabetes is 3.2 times higher, chronic liver disease and cirrhosis 4.6 times higher, and intentional self-harm and suicide is uh, at a rate of 1.7 times higher. For youth specifically, it is 2.5 times higher than the rest of the country. So that makes it the highest youth suicide rate among all other races or ethnicities in the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, certainly touches one of the families I'm going to talk about in this case as well. So to kind of segue us into public safety and security and legality. So like I said before, tribal law enforcement can be pretty variable. So remember that there are approximately 1 million people living on reservations in the U.S. So tribally operated law enforcement agencies employ about 4,500 full-time personnel and 3,000 sworn officers. And that was in 2008, but the expectation is not a big shift in those numbers. There are 1.3 sworn police officers for every 1,000 people. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's terrible. Yes. So here's another way to look at those numbers. Okay. So tribal law enforcement makes up 0.004% of the nation's total law enforcement and is responsible for patrolling 1% of the U.S. population and 2% of the nation's land mass. I'm glad you put it that way, but damn, just because that really brings to light. Yeah. Because like, yeah. I know. And I think we've had a lot of conversations about like under-policed or um, poorly policed places. You know, we talked about that with Cleveland, mm-hmm. you know, with uh, Sawell and everything. And, you know, I think in those places, it's like the thought is the police don't care. Yeah. Yeah. In the context of indigenous Americans, the police don't exist. Yeah. Like they don't exist. It's just not there. You know, just even right. thinking of like landmass, that's one police officer. How many tens or hundreds of miles? 
Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's so sparse. It's so sparse. And there's also like not a whole lot of regulation around like how many people are on duty at any given time. Mm -hmm. So like, who's going to respond? So, and I have got some interesting factoids about that later. So we have got a vastly under supported community of people in this country, right? Yes. Underserved, under supported. Yeah, exactly. So at the same time, American Indians and Alaska Natives are more likely to experience violent crimes at two and a half times higher than the national average. Wow. Yes. Twice as likely to experience rape or sexual assault crimes. Wow. So to put that number a little bit differently, 84.3% of these women, which is four in five, will experience violence in their lifetime. Holy fuck. Yeah. 56.1% of them will experience sexual violence specifically. And then here's a real mind blower. About 59% of tribes have a dedicated tribal judicial system. Wait, how many? 59%. 59. 59%. Mm-hmm. Okay. The other math percent? 41. 41. The other 41%. Um, it's going to be a melange of relying on federal judicial systems relying on local judicial systems but again you've got those jurisdictional problems where who takes responsibility for what is is largely kind of up in the air yeah so i'm gonna talk a little bit about standing rock specifically as we kind of zero in um to my case so often there is only one officer on duty on behalf of the tribal police for the entire reservation Okay. And again, this is a huge amount of area. Yeah. Um, some women report waiting hours or days to receive a response from the Standing Rock Police Department if they receive a response at all. Um, and one article I read cited that some of the really big barriers facing women uh, as far as reporting sexual assault and undergoing uh, examination as such, like rape kits, uh, is just that Some, well, most women have to travel an average of an hour to get to the hospital in Fort Yates. Oh, wow. Yeah. To undergo these types of examinations. And often there are not people on staff that are trained to conduct rape kits. So in that case, they may have to go to Bismarck, which is 80 miles away from Fort Yates. That's another hour and some. Exactly. To experience that. And if a woman goes to a facility that is not governed by the BIA, they may be charged for that service as well. Jesus. Yeah. So there are a lot of aspects of this system that just feel kind of hopeless, right? Or scary. Like I felt a lot of kind of fear reading about this and researching this just because it was like, just kind of on behalf of all of these women, especially like I could imagine feeling pretty hopeless as a result. So the victim I'm going to talk about today um, very much was embedded in her community and wanted to do something about it. So her name was Ivy Archambault. Uh, Her, I know. Well, get this. Her Lakota name was Pretty Bird Woman, which I thought was so beautiful. Yeah. Her sister, who I'll talk about later, called her Pretty Bird. So that's what I'm going to call her as well. Um, And she really kind of embodied her name. She had pretty features and she was just fiercely dedicated to her community um she was really really proud to be college educated Mm -hmm. she attended sitting bull college and finished her ba in may of 2001 and she was 31 at the time Mm -hmm. and she was yeah like amazing good for you uh and her degree was in social work she was ambitious and she was really well loved big family she was described by her half-sister uh, whose name was Anna Longchase, as a devout Christian, somebody who was quiet and smart, and a homebody who really liked to spend her time uh, just chilling out with her rescue pets. Aww, I yeah. love her. I know. So she just sounds like she was a really, really lovely person. Yeah. So she worked as a social worker for the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Hell yeah. Um, I know. And she was seen as very much so like a conscientious and dedicated employee Her work was specifically focused around helping to provide uh, temporary financial support and living assistance to families. And then there was also some like job training and resume building kind of stuff involved. So she was just like really devoted to getting people, uh, families safe and people on their feet. That work is so rough. So I really, really 
admire that. Like I've yeah. worked in community mental health and those jobs are so tough. Yeah, totally, totally. And especially like butting up against all the barriers and challenges, you know, in McLaughlin, which is the town that she lived mm-hmm. in, you know, it was a big job. It was a really big job. Yeah. There's a lot of people with a lot of need. Totally. Yeah. And she really wanted to serve them. Mm-hmm. And that is kind of a theme that runs through her whole family. Just a lot of wanting to kind of give back and and serve the community and, and have that kind of collectivist consciousness, which I think is really beautiful. She was single. She didn't have any kids. Uh, she lived alone in a small bungalow. In uh, So she lived in McLaughlin. And there was a housing district, a reservation housing district, kind of on the southern end of town called the Bear Soldier Reservation Housing District. And at the time, and so this case takes us to the fall of 2001, um, it was kind of scary to be a single woman living alone in that area at the time because that fall there had been just a rash of burglaries and break-ins um, that were specifically kind of targeting single women in McLaughlin um, and the surrounding areas. So a lot of women were scared. I read one article where somebody was interviewed and she talked about just setting booby traps in her house because she was so nervous about being broken into. Wow. Yeah. And then again, like you may be waiting a long time for a response. So women were scared. Yeah. They were scared, in- including pretty birds. So, and then the, the community was kind of already tense because earlier in that summer, a 17 year old girl named Lakota Madison was murdered um, and found in the nearby Grand River. And so what's tough about this is that violence was not uncommon towards women. So it just kind of added to this like layered anxiety that, that they were kind of undergoing right now. Um, and there was just like kind of, I, I think this like low grade anxiety mm-hmm. that people were living with. Now the, the person that killed Lakota Madison, they were apprehended and tried almost immediately. So there wasn't like a connection, but it just put the community on just high alert, you know? Yeah, I think any event like that, it just when it especially when it seems really sudden and out of control, mm-hmm. you get more anxious for a period. Yeah, totally. And you know, we talk a lot about like small town, you know, connections and and in a town that's small, like everybody knows everybody, right? Mm-hmm. So it's different when it hits that close to home too. Mm-hmm. So What was happening basically with these break-ins was just that in the middle of the night, burglars were silently entering homes um, and they would take off their shoes and just make no noise. One of the burglaries happened through like a basement window. So you've got the sense that these guys were like casing these houses and kind of knew how to do it, you know, Mm -hmm. and they were leaving with things like purses and wallets and jewelry and stuff like that. One of the police officers that was kind of interviewed about it said that um, if it didn't happen in the middle of the night, the women would have been able to identify the intruders just because of how small and close-knit that community was. Yeah, like you said, everybody knows everybody in a town. Like yeah. That. Yeah, and all the signs pointed to locals because it was, you know, they knew they knew what to do. And this is not exactly like a town you travel to, you know, to, like, case the joint, right? So certainly it was locals. So that kind of brings us to Thursday, October 4th, 2001. Pretty Bird left work at the end of the day and would not ever be seen alive again. I want to kind of especially note that the night she disappeared, there was one tribal police officer on duty for the entire reservation. Wow. So all 15, no, not even just the town, the entire reservation. The entire reservation. Jesus, okay. Yeah. Was he in McLaughlin? No. I mean, this is 2.3 million acres. He would have been probably closer to Fort Yates, kind of a center hub. But that was a half an hour away. So um, on Friday... She didn't report to work and, uh, you know, it was a Friday. So, you know, that's when you would take a long weekend, but she wasn't the type to not say anything. Mm-hmm. And her, bo- her boss, whose name was Kathy Valley, she was just really worried because she had never had issues with Pretty Bird not showing up to work. Mm-hmm. But instead of calling the police at the time, Kathy called her family and put the family kind of on alert instead. So that Saturday, Pretty Bird was supposed to hang out with her brother and then when she didn't show up, her family kind of pulled together an unofficial search, okay. basically. And so, you know, they're kind of talking to each other. Have you seen her? Have you heard from her? This, this, this. Now, at first, one of the tips that kind of came through was that an aunt of hers thought that she may have been at a powwow at the Rushmore Plaza Civic Center, mm-hmm. um, which was running from the 4th to the 6th. So right kind of in the span of time. 
because the aunt was also at that powwow and thought that she heard somebody page Pretty Bird over the loudspeaker. You know, like back in the day, like if you were lost at Target, it would be like, you know, Tommy, please find your mother. She's at the pretzels, that kind of thing. (laughs) (laughs) But the aunt didn't know who called the page. Okay. So, so we don't even know if she was there or not. It was just like, maybe she was there. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you misheard something. Who even knows? Right, exactly. So that kind of takes them through the weekend. You know, and I think that this is just very reflective of, like, my comfort and my position in society. Mm -hmm. When, like, in my head, my knee-jerk reaction is, why didn't you call the police? Right. But then reminding myself, there's one for the entire reservation. It's probably not even, like, your go-to response for anything. Right, totally. It's just not that efficient. There is an amazing, very recent episode of This American Life about a woman who kind of pursues missing and murdered Indigenous women cases, and it is an excellent episode that I would recommend. Okay. And so good. Yeah, oh, the best. So she didn't come to work on Monday, the 8th, and that's when everyone was like, okay, we really have a problem here. So the police were finally dispatched to her home and they found the home very much obviously broken into and very obviously burglarized and um, in shambles, Mm -hmm. but no sign of pretty bird. So her dad, his name is Doug, he kind of launched his own like kind of casual unofficial search uh, and he was just driving around and looking. And so by Tuesday, he was just out, like, canvassing everywhere he could, just driving around, asking people. And then he ran out of gas money to be able to continue what he was doing. So, you know, he was just really doing his best and, you know, really limited resources. Mm -hmm. So now at about the same time, tribal police and the FBI launched a search as well. FBI involved because of that federal connection, right? Yeah. So they were launching a search as well. And this search extended from McLaughlin to Rapid City, which is 235 miles away. Oh, wow. Okay. So why that specific center point in Rapid City? Yeah. Because on Sunday the 7th, her car was found in Rapid City. Wait, how many days is that after after she was last seen? She was last seen on Thursday, and her car was found on Sunday. Oh, wow. That's a lot of time to pass. Yeah. Okay. And it's interesting that the car was found before police checked out her house. Yeah. So there's just also a kind of a level of disorganization here that I think is just kind of exemplifies the situation, you know? How was her car found? Were they looking for it specifically or did somebody like call it in? Well, okay. So they were, they had a bolo out for her car. It was a red Plymouth Breeze and it was seen being driven by a male with a female in the car Mm -hmm. and the car itself stalled out because it ran out of gas in rapid city in the middle of town at that point the female passenger was gone had been dropped off somewhere and the male driver was seen running from the vehicle so he drove until he ran out of gas and then ran yep rapid city pd did not pursue the person Oh, shut the fuck up. Mm-hmm. Yep. Ugh, Rapid City. What do you think? I know. I know. But the Rapid City Journal, this blows my mind, reported on October 12th that the FBI knew this person's identity. What? So they knew who it was in the Plymouth. The driver or the passenger? The driver, I'm assuming. The driver. Okay. The driver. Yep. So at the same time, On that day, on October 12th, the same article that mentioned that about the FBI knowing the identity of the driver, one of the things that really blew my mind was that the article that reported about the individual seen running from the vehicle ran that information under the headline that Pretty Bird was missing and assumed murdered already without a body. After just the car? Yeah, so at this point, the spoiler is that I'll say the police have information that the newspapers don't have. Okay. So I think it just kind of speaks to, like, kind of a communal hopelessness, honestly. Yeah. More than anything else. Mm -hmm. So, 
you know, the police, the FBI has a name and everything for this driver, but the news media doesn't have that. Okay. You know, I think what they do have is just the ennui that I think just kind of plagues this this entire case. Yeah. So, so at this point, there is, I just want to kind of outline like the large number of agencies involved. So you got the Bureau of Indian Affairs. You got the FBI. You've got the Meade County Sheriff's Office, which is where Rapid City is, the Rapid City Police, the South Dakota Highway Patrol, the South Dakota Division of Criminal Investigations, and the Standing Rock Police. That's a lot of organizations. It is. It is. A lot of organizations that, you know, for which there's, like, not really a precedent for really working together. (laughs) Yeah. So... Uh, a search of the car didn't really turn up any clues about Pretty Bird's whereabouts. At this point, her father told one reporter, quote, she might be lying out someplace in a field, in a ravine. Ranchers and farmers from here to Rapid City should be checking their ranges, their fields, old barns and stuff. So again, there's that just kind of hopelessness. Like, I think there's this assumption that we're looking for a body. Yeah. We're not looking for a live person. Which... It's hard because that takes away some of that expediency Mm -hmm. that is really important if that person is still alive. Exactly, right? Like, you treat it like a foregone conclusion, it becomes a foregone conclusion, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So I found that to be just really kind of stunning, honestly. Something that I kind of reacted to, you know, in a big way, but... It's interesting because obviously we've covered a lot of cases of missing white women. Mm -hmm. Um, And we never hear this attitude no you don't and even like i had this thought that like even just where information is located within a newspaper says a lot right yeah oh yeah and almost every article about this disappearance and even the subsequent like court case and everything was buried within these newspapers and we're talking about the rapid city journal we're not talking about the new york times here yeah so yeah like this article that I have been pulling for most recently ran on page C1 of the Rapid City Journal. Okay. So that's three sections in. Mm-hmm. So that, that just blows my mind. And I just had the thought, like, kind of like you said, like if that was you or me and it was, you know, the South Bend Tribune, the newspaper here in South Bend, it would be yeah. first page above the fold. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm just thinking about even just the cases that I've covered, thinking about Erica and Sydney. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were, Erica was gone an hour, and there were hundreds of people out looking for her. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, yeah. I guess it's, it's a stark difference, and some of the reasons kind of make sense. Again, like, this is an adult. This is mm-hmm. a one-person police department. Right, essentially, yeah. And then, like, this kind of homegrown investigation yeah. or search for her that comes basically on behalf of her dad. Mm-hmm. So, the timeline in my case from here on out is pretty expedient. So, it was not a search that lasted long because a tip came through, and I'll talk about that tip later, uh, about the location of Pretty Bird's body. Mm-hmm. And her body was found eventually along a stretch of main road outside of Newell, South Dakota. That was a full three hours from home. Okay. So the discovery of her body was on the early hours of the morning on October 12th. So that article I was talking about ran on October 12th, mm-hmm. but they didn't have that information yet. So her body was found just in the wee hours of the morning on October 12th. And the authorities did not want to release anything to the public about how they found her or mm-hmm. who that tipster was. I think it's also just kind of important to note that her family was devastated, but they spoke kind of right away about a feeling of peace that at least they knew where she was. So I just thought that was kind of... It hits hard. Yeah, it hits hard. I don't know how to describe it. It just kind of hits hard. So what happened to her was pretty brutal. She had been sexually assaulted and beaten to death, uh, likely with a nearby large tree branch. It seemed from what they saw that she was alive when she arrived in Newell, um, but had been taken there under duress. So the most likely timeline was that she was raped in her home and then brought to Newell where she was beaten and left. Yeah. 
How far is that from Rapid City where they found the car? So there's about an hour between Rapid City and Newell. Newell is 59 miles to the north of Rapid City. So we are operating in like kind of a big, well, not kind of, definitely just a big swath of area. So when I was thinking about this, like in a, you know, in a way to make it kind of make sense to me, like just geographically, it would be kind of the equivalent of like a crime happening in Detroit and then the body being found in like Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. Yeah. You know, just a, a large distance. Which was kind of, it made the timeline kind of confusing to put together. Like, when was she alive? When was she dead? All that stuff. So, um, the person that was fleeing the vehicle was found and then taken into custody. So, the person that was in her car was arrested and taken into custody. How long after? Okay, so this is where things get kind of um, aggravating, if you're not already aggravated. So... This guy was taken into custody later in the day on the 12th of October. So very fast. Because the FBI already knew who he was. So, and because even though... I want to hear why the FBI knew who he was, and I know we'll get there. I just <laughs> So, um, basically, it traces back to the break-ins. So, who the person was that was taken into custody was 15-year-old Gary Lee Long Jr. I want to emphasize, 15-year-old. Yeah. Okay. Gary Long Jr. and one other at Juvenile were apprehended in connection to the break-in. Okay. Gary Long was the one fleeing her car, and the woman that he was driving with was his cousin. Okay. Because he was the one driving the car. He was the one that was more easily connected to the actual rape and murder of Pretty Bird. Okay. The other guy, it was thought to be that he was just involved in the break-in. Okay. So I'm going to talk a little bit about Gary Long Jr. Because when he was arrested, exactly nobody in his life was surprised, even though he was only 15. Great. That's a great start. Well, there's just a lot of tragedy in this life. So Yeah. um, There usually is with kids like that. Yeah. Exactly. So his dad, Gary Long Sr., is a violent sex offender um, registered in the state of South Dakota. Gary Jr. just knew violence from a very young age and had seen a lot of violence in the home. Both of his parents were alcoholics, and uh, he and his siblings were just kind of left to their own devices a lot of the time. So Mm -hmm. kind of neglected and just kind of left to fend for themselves. By his mid-teens, he had already witnessed a brother commit suicide. Mm. And he was also already an alcoholic himself. Yeah. So I read a short interview with a BIA officer named Mike Yellow, and he told the Bismarck Tribune that um, nobody could be surprised at where Gary Long ended up because, uh, and this is his direct quote, "The the way things are is just so bad. There's a complete breakdown of everything. Everything is broken. Oh, my God. So it's like you talk about a cycle, right? And this case is like such a stunning example of that, you know? Mm -hmm. So he was only 15 years old. So then comes the question, do we try as an adult? Do we try as a juvenile? The tricky part is that because it is a tribal affairs issue, but there was not a specific judicial system in place at Standing Rock at the time. He was indicted under a federal grand jury. Okay. And he was indicted as an adult on four charges. Kidnapping resulting in death, aggravated sexual abuse, first-degree burglary, and larceny. As an adult? As an adult. Okay. Yeah, I have so many feelings about charging children as adults. Okay. Well, share those feelings, because what I'm going to tell you next is, is interesting. It's hard being one of the only developed nations that does that. Mm-hmm. Um, just morally, it sinks in your soul, and just knowing all of the various factors that go into committing crimes like that, and childhood exposure, and brain development, and mm-hmm. I just, I can't, I can't get behind it. It's hard. Yeah. It's, 
especially, I mean, I think sometimes too, like every year in your teens is a big year. Mm -hmm. So 15 to 16, 16 to 17, 17 to 18, like those are three really big years, Mm -hmm. you know? So I think there's also a difference between 15 and 17, you know? So I don't really know kind of how I feel about it on like a global level. I just think that the details here are interesting. Um, so he actually accepted a, a deal and mm-hmm. he pled guilty to just the aggravated sexual abuse. Okay. So by making that plea agreement, he basically avoided a potential life sentence um, and the possibility of lethal injection. Oh my God, at a 15 year old. I'm sorry. I just. I, yes, this is a tragic case. This is absolutely awful. I have another case coming up on the docket that has another minor offender, but I don't know, just facing the death penalty as a 15-year-old who it sounds like wasn't given much of a chance in life. Right. And and that doesn't take away from the tragedy that is Pretty Bird's life at all. Yeah. Again, I'm going to ask people to hold two things at Mm -hmm. the same time, but yeah. 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 And... I think the other thing that, like, just kind of adds some depth to it, too, is the fact that, you know, Pretty Bird was devoting her career to trying to break these cycles, right? Like, trying to get kids out of bad situations, trying to support families. Um, And then she ended up being kind of a, you know, like a collateral damage of of that cycle, you Mm -hmm. know? Like, by all accounts, her family itself was, like, pretty solid, but... um, you know, I think she ended up just being like, like I said, just this kind of collateral situation. So the sentence that came with that plea deal was a 42 year and nine month sentence to be served in federal prison. So he is set to be released in 2044. And at that point he will be 58. So again, like his youth, is really striking to me. So he is currently 34 years old. Yeah. And this crime happened in 2001. Yeah. So I, that just kind of blew my mind. Like he's basically, he's two years older than me. And I don't know. It just blew my mind. I don't have a conclusion. It just blew my mind. I had a 15 uh, year old in an adult federal prison. Mm hmm. So the same hesitation and question mark and ire that you have about this is what has fueled a series of appeal attempts from Gary Long and his legal team. And the premise of his appeals was basically positing that his sentence was a violation of the Eighth Amendment provision against cruel and unusual punishment. Agree with that. Yeah. So the amendment protects, here's where it gets tricky though. The Eighth Amendment protects juveniles from life sentences without parole for non-homicide offenses. Mm -hmm. Now, the hope on the behalf of his legal team was that his sentence was kind of as good as a life sentence. I don't know if you can argue that with the age that he would be released. Exactly, 58. So that's, and that's exactly why the U.S. Court of Appeals Eighth Circuit shut it down. Okay. So his appeal attempts were denied and he currently sits in federal prison, actually here in the Hoosier State in Terre Haute, Indiana. So... We're neighbors. Neighbors. Yeah. So all of this is pretty depressing. Yeah. And I think we always end up really admiring families that take these tragedies and try to turn them into something beautiful. And Mm -hmm. that is something that happened really poignantly in this case that I want to talk about. So Pretty Bird came from a pretty big family and her older sister, whose name is Jackie Brown Otter, wanted to do something productive for the community, kind of in the spirit of Pretty Bird and what she would have wanted to do as well. So she uh, was inspired to open the Pretty Bird Woman House, which is a woman's shelter that serves women and children in the McLaughlin area. Mm -hmm. So she has kind of been able to really continually advocate. She has been on NPR she was involved in a lot of the uh, DAPL protests, all this kind of stuff. She's awesome. She's a badass. Mm-hmm. And she's just like really living this work. So she speaks out on behalf of rape victims and assault victims on mm-hmm. reservations. She talks and writes a lot about 
you know, how and why rape and sexual assault cases don't get recorded and the lack of response from authorities. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Which it sounds like, like we complain about that. I mean, in big cities and everything, and mm -hmm. like this is really eye opening to how bad it is on reservations. Yeah. Yeah. And Jackie Brown Otter is really trying to do something about it. Is there any information about like, because I know that you had said before, tracking down, you know, vital information on this case was pretty rough. But is there any information on like, okay, she was, she was kidnapped and then five days later she was found. Is there any information? How long did she live? Was, would there have been time to save her? Would there have been anything? The only time that would have been able to save her from everything I was able to cobble together was that the thought was that she left McLaughlin alive in the car with Gary okay. Long Jr. So thought is that he drove straight to Newell and beat her. So her body was in Newell for that seven days. Do we know anything about motiv his motivation or mm -mm. what trick? God, that's just it. It like it why her. Yeah, why her? Why the long drive? Yeah. That seems, I don't know. That Yeah. There's so many questions I have. And I know, like you said, you did the research. You dug as deep as you could. I just, I'm, I'm left feeling so many questions and so much frustration. Yeah, I mean, I did everything that I could do short of writing him an email, which I thought about doing. <laughs> why did you do this I, well yeah i know because i was getting so flummoxed like trying to put it all together i mean i had the same question so it was like the the window in which she could have been saved was in that few hours between mclaughlin and newell yeah so if you think about like the drive from where you live to come and see me in south bend yep. plus a half an hour that would have been the space of time in which something could have been but Nobody knew she was missing until she didn't come to work the next day anyway. She lived alone. Yeah. Nobody would have known. So I think for all intents and purposes, the answer is no. Okay. There yeah. wasn't really a window because nobody knew she was missing until the next day anyway. That's really sad. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so the thought was that she was raped in her home, alive in the car, what condition she was in in the car. We don't know. She could have been passed out. She could have been knocked out. We don't know. And there's no evidence that the either the other kid who did the burglaries or his cousin, he said, was in the car with him? Right. His cousin was in the car with him. And the cousin lived in Rapid City. So it sounded like he, he drove out to Newell. He killed Pretty Bird. And then he's cruising around Rapid City and hanging out with his cousin in Pretty Bird's car, basically. So the cousin didn't have any connection. So she had no idea what was going on. She was just like, sure, come over, cuz. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. That's so confusing. Isn't it? And the the why is, there isn't really a why other than the, you know, what he knew was a life of violence. Yeah. This is the first crime that we know about. But could he have committed other rapes? Possibly. Um, and something about this one escalated. That's just a theory. It's a 15-year-old to drive three hours or two and a yeah. half hours or whatever. It's... Well, fear. Yeah. yeah. For one thing, like, let me just get as far away from here as possible. It's just so hard for me to imagine, like, a 15-year-old, like, carrying a body into his, into their car and just driving away with it. Yeah. Well, so I kind of wonder if she was coerced into her car and then put in the trunk. That makes more sense to me, yeah. Yeah, because she, she did not die in her home. That we know. Okay, okay, yeah. Oh, yeah, you're right, you're right. You said that she died in... Uh, where she was found. Where she was found, yeah. So, and there was no blood in the car. There was no... Nothing in the car. So, I think maybe that he knocked her over the head, put her in the trunk. Okay. Or coerced her into the trunk, something like that. Because there wasn't anything forensic in the car. Hmm. yeah so there's a lot of questions here a lot mm -hmm. of questions and i think like what kind of in a summary of a blog post i read from the pretty bird woman house's blog mm -hmm. um which is a good read 
basically, like, just to kind of paraphrase them, like, women often just don't report rape and sexual assault because of the lack of response from the authorities. And the local authorities are basically just kind of impotent in the face of the federal system that is yeah. so big and beastly that they're not going to pick up cases that aren't murders anyway. Yeah. So it's just like, you know, it's a a tragedy that's part of a tragic cycle, you know? Yeah. But that's what you said. You could, Sorry, I'm looking for a picture of her, and I rem- remember that you said you couldn't find one. Mm-mm. And that, I mean, it is, like, infuriating, you know? Because you want to find the information so badly, and it just doesn't exist. That's really upsetting. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, I thought about not doing this case, and then I was like, I'm I'm committed to it. Well, no, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you told the story, because I think... I guess part of the takeaway for me is the frustration. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's why I ended up sticking with it was like, I, I could have done an easier case with great pictures and, you know, and something with some notoriety to it. But it's like, I don't want a story like pretty birds to be forgotten to be overshadowed just because you don't have pictures or it's not, you know, and I think, I don't know, I guess that brings me back to kind of our whole, goal when we started this is to bring light to some of these like lesser known cases yeah yeah so the social media on this one's gonna look different okay i mean i was gonna use a picture of her sister you know and some like screenshots of streets in mclaughlin and some of these places and stuff like that but you know uh there's not even a mugshot of gary long jr that's That's i thought that was really easy yeah there's not even a mugshot it's not there. You can find his dad's, his sexual, his sex offender shot. You can find that. So I was like, this is probably what he looks like. I don't know. Oh, so he's out. He's out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He has a long uh, record, though. Yeah, that's, I guess that's what upsets me. He's like clearly in his 50s and out. Mm-hmm. With a very long record. And, you know, yes, obviously what Gary Long Jr. did was atrocious and horrible and unforgivable but yeah uh, i don't know I, I guess i don't have the words to articulate it right now i mean it feels like an injustice on all levels that's the thing like, yeah it feels like an injustice at every level yeah you know pretty bird faced injustice mm-hmm. you know a system perpetuated by injustice made gary long jr possible and then prevents Gary Long Jr. from probably rehabilitation. It's just layers of injustice and systemic problems. And the icing on the cake is that nobody talks about it. Like exactly. It's not published. It's not. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's not. It's not sensationalized. And so I was like, I'm, I'm telling this story. Even if it's not a great story, like a quote unquote great story, I'm still telling it. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's not a known story. We have limited resources to tell it. And if anybody wants to send us more, we're, we're obviously happy to take them and happy to integrate it. But yeah. Yeah. It's frustrating how little information there is. It is, yeah, for sure. And it was just like that. It just made it feel like that much more important of a story to tell, even if it was going to be just kind of bare bones. You know, and that kind of brings me to kind of my final point. Like, the Pretty Bird Woman house was opened up in tribute to what happened to Pretty Bird and to memorialize her and to create a legacy for her. And that organization has undergone some serious obstacles along the way to provide the services that they provide but they're still fucking doing it hell yeah yes and i just like i want to celebrate that and then my big question was like okay what can we do then like what can the rest of us do and you know i think the the first thing that we can do is to educate ourselves Mm -hmm. right i mean i learned a lot studying this case you've learned stuff talking to me about it like we learn, we educate ourselves, we find out what's going on, we share news, we share information, you know. So that's first and foremost, right, is educating. And then, you know, when it comes to taking action, like, there's a billion ways to take action, but there are lots of organizations that are devoted to trying to 
you know, bring justice to missing and murdered Indigenous women. Um, organizations like the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women USA, which is at mmiwusa.org. You know, they take donations. The Pretty Bird Woman House um, certainly is a nonprofit organization. So I think it's, you know, it's doing the research and then it's putting your money where your mouth is, right? Yeah. Like that's, that's how we can help, you know? Yeah. I appreciate you telling the story. Well, thank you for appreciating it. I appreciate that. <laughs> and that's the story. That's it right there. So, you know, I think learn something, you know, yeah. that's the, at the end of the day, like that's the, the moral of the story. Like, I think it's really beautiful that they celebrate her life this way. And like, that's part of, I don't know, something that I'd like to do to kind of tribute to that is like, there would little donation towards one of these organizations just to yeah, try you know definitely yeah yeah i don't know if we ever intended on it or if it's just because it's the way that we work but i like that we have kind of come to a pattern of always kind of giving resources and like a little light at the end of the tunnel at the end of our it's, episodes it's kind of who we are friend yeah we kind of love that all right friends all right oh next week Yes, tell us about next week. Uh, next week is our Thanksgiving Spectacular. <laughs> <laughs> Happy Thanksgiving! Happy Thanksgiving! Don't gather in large crowds. Don't gather Eat in large pumpkin crowds. Pumpkin pie standing over your sink like I do. Yeah. Oh, it's Buckeye season too. Shut up. Oh, it is Buckeye season. You make Buckeyes. Yeah, anyway, so next week is our Thanksgiving Spectacular. We're going to be covering Benjamin Nathaniel Smith. A spree shooter motivated by some white supremacist churches. So we're going to talk about the creativity movement. Oh, boy. Yep. So, you know, gather around your Thanksgiving table, light some candles, stress eat some pie, and listen to us talk about white supremacist spree films. Yeah. I can't think of a better way to spend my holiday, can you? I think it's the absolute best way to start a lovely family conversation. Absolutely, because we know politics are going to be at your family table anyway. Why not just turn up a notch? Why don't you just turn on McWretched and let us incite the fight this Thanksgiving? Yeah, it's not your fault. It's your fault? It's our fault. Let it be our fault. Blame me. My family already does. (laughs) (laughs) Do we have any other announcements? Follow us on the socials. As always, please like us on Facebook. Say nice Follow us on Instagram. Reviews. Say nice things and reviews. I'm working on getting a website up, but I'm really frustrated with it. So give me time. Give me space. Yes, we do. We give you time and space and love and light. Murder Beagle has some tests coming up, so please send him good vibes. Yeah, definitely. We love Murder Beagle. We do. He's a sweetums. Indeed. Shall we conclude? Be nice, people. Eat cheese, people. And we love you. We love you, people. I mean, I really enjoy watching all the hot men on CNN, so that helped a lot. (laughs) They really have the monopoly on sexy... Commentators. <laughs> oh, what you don't think Lou Dobbs is foxy? I mean,